We're back again with the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. I'm Paul Wilkinson, Adult Minister Group's Associate on the Brentwood campus. We're here to talk about our last lesson topic in the How to Make Disciples series called Maturing While Multiplying, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. So if you, if you look in the show notes, I'll make a link to a blog I did recently that has the cards on them, on the front side of the little card, a business-sized card, maybe a little bit bigger. On the front side is the who is the disciple diagram and on the back are the spiritual challenge questions, which again, I encourage you to continue to use as a litmus for your own spiritual health and that of your group as well. But on the front side of that card where you see the diagram, you'll see the three arrows that go around the outside and the b- bottom arrow says uh, this is an outflowing. The disciple making endeavor is an outflowing of prayer, scripture and Sabbath and that we are mindful of the lost and searching that was a few sermons ago we talked about how the discipleship endeavor is not only aimed at current believers or baby believers but it's also aimed at lost people those yet to believe is a good way to think about it and today we're elevating the last of those arrows called maturing while multiplying and it is in some ways a a countercultural idea believe it or not it's a very common sense idea but it's countercultural we live in a very technocratic society. Go to the expert, get the expert's opinion. Um, we are trained in school to study up, study up, study up, and then you'll be ready. Go to college, then you'll be ready. The idea of apprenticing and mentoring, you can still find it in things like medical fellowships and residencies. Uh, you can find it in internships and these sort of things, but it's in many ways a lost, a lost art. You know, you study up, get the content, and I guess you'll figure it out on the job or, in theory, you're ready for the job. That has made its way into the church in a dangerous, dangerous way that many people, and I know this as a fact at our campus here at Brentwood because I've talked to many of these people as I'm doing apologetics teaching and uh, worldview training, they don't think they have enough answers. They don't think they are qualified. They don't think they are mature enough. They don't think they have enough content or knowledge to disciple others or just to share their faith in the most simple ways. And in one sense, they're right because you're never going to have enough to feel adequate. But God doesn't ask you to feel adequate before you go. He says, once you have the gospel, once you're redeemed, once you're regenerate, that is, you've been uh, regenerated into a new being in the person and work of Christ, you become a new creation then be about the business of disciple making. There's always someone behind you on the road. There's always somebody where you just were. Uh, the point we're trying to make with this is do not sit on the bench because you don't feel ready. Don't sit on the bench because you don't feel ready. Part of how you're going to develop those skills, answers, knowledge, etc., is in the actual business of disciple making. So you see that shift? You don't need to study for 30 years and then now you're ready to make a disciple because we give you a certificate or a license or a diploma 
or something like that for disciple making is that once you come to know the person and work of Christ, then you're ready to be about the business of disciple making. And so I think we can do two things for our people here. One, just hammer that message home. You don't need a, a certificate from Brentwood Baptist Church to go make disciples. What you need is your understanding of the gospel and you need your testimony. <laughs> if you have those two things, you're ready. Uh, get out there and get to it. So one, encourage them that don't mature, don't, don't think about maturing first, becoming an expert and then multiplying. Go ahead and start multiplying. That's part of how we prove to be a disciple. Again, John 15, 8. Uh, part of how we prove to be a disciple is that we are multiplying our faith. We're bearing fruit. We're reaping harvest. So you're not going to mature in that way until you get about the business. So be about the business. And the second part of that is we have to train our group members to look for the right people. You are not called to disciple everyone. You are not called to disciple everyone. That's a false idea. You're called to disciple those who are welcoming to your message. Remember uh, a few lessons ago, a few sermons ago, your preacher talked about shaking off the dust of your feet and moving on uh, for those who are not worthy as the 70 went into these towns to prepare the way for Messiah to come. It's no different here. Um, if you, so, so let me give you the non, let me give you the general answer first and then we'll get the specific answer after that. So the general answer is to say this, find somebody who's behind you on the journey of Christ likeness. So the goal is to be formed, transformed, conformed into the image of Christ. That's Paul's language. You are at a certain point on that road, let's say mile marker 80 out of infinity miles. You're a mile marker 80. There's people behind you on that road, okay? You don't need to go grab your local campus pastor and disciple that person. You don't necessarily need to grab the stalwart in your community. You, you all know who I'm talking about in your own communities, those people that are seen with respect, those people that have walked the walk of the journey. You don't need to grab that person and disciple them, okay? You need to find someone behind you on the road that is walking through what you've already walked through and help them understand that. So get the ideal vitriolic, naturalistic atheist out of your mind who has a thousand arguments against God. That's not necessarily who you're going to go after. Think about that young mother who just became a part of your congregation who has accepted Christ within the previous year and doesn't understand how to read the Bible, doesn't understand what different translations are, go disciple that person, all right? So let's let's train our people to seek out folks that they can disciple, the people that they're called to disciple, and get this ideal enemy out of their mind because it's hindering their willingness to engage. Nevertheless, maybe you are called to disciple that ideal enemy uh, in your mind. And maybe you're not called to answer them on their own category. So here's your little philosophical aside for the moment. Romans 1 is clear that God's existence is evident to everyone in creation, his eternal power and his divine nature. But because of sin in our life, our minds are so polluted that we suppress that obvious truth. So God designed us to know him. Sin pollutes that. And we suppress that truth in our unrighteousness, that is, in our sinfulness. And so the problem with the ideal enemy you have in your mind that you'll never have enough answers for or that you're not good enough for because you have some sins in your life that that you wrestle with, um, that person's problem isn't those answers and it's not 
the deficiencies in your life. The problem for them is sin. <laughs> and we overcome sin with our testimonies and with the gospel of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit works on to convert the individual. So while you may have enough, never have enough answers to satisfy them in their suppression of truth and all their goofy arguments against God's existence, you have exactly what they actually need, which is the remedy for sin. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So my, my general advice is aim at those people who are behind you on the journey, help them walk a little more faithful. And hopefully the disciple making strategy helps you do that. Who is the disciple? Somebody who believes and follows Jesus, being changed by Jesus, live on mission with Jesus. How do you make disciples? Help somebody else do that. So find someone behind you on the journey, help them do that a little bit better. Secondarily, trust in the power of our Lord, trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, trust in the sovereignty of the Father, that if you are up against your ideal enemy in a discipling endeavor, the answer is the same. The success, I defined it a few episodes ago, the success is being faithful to your story, being faithful to God's story. You might not have enough answers. You might not be able to solve the inductive problem of evil for them. That's okay. Their real problem is sin. And you can solve that one with the person and work of Jesus Christ, elevated both in the text and in your own life. So be confident and be bold in that. I love Second Timothy, um, and I love this passage in particular, Second Timothy 2. It is just so apt for the disciple maker. Uh, there's certainly some good content, some good illustrations in the um, in the leader guide that you can find on adults.journeyonleadership.com. However, I wanted to elevate a few things just that I care about <laughs> and that I read in a few commentaries that are just so, so good. Uh, one, we see the three imperatives. So um, that's a good way to frame out what you might want to talk about in, in your time with your groups so the three imperatives are verse one be strengthened verse two entrust verse three share in suffering so imperatives are just commands so you have these three commands that paul is giving to timothy be strengthened by the grace that is in christ so rest on your salvation again when you face your ideal enemy that i just talked about rest on your salvation the person and work of christ entrust to faithful men which is what i'm going to talk about most and then verse three, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And Paul, I think, has in mind there, share in my suffering, the way I'm in prison now, the way I've been shipwrecked, the way I've been beaten, lashed, jailed, etc. Share in that suffering and share in the suffering of the person of Jesus Christ, because our Lord suffered too. So why should we expect anything different? So those three, um, those three commands are excellent. As you're praying over your groups this week, this week, how can you help them be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus? What battles and obstacles are they facing that they need the strength of Christ Jesus? How can you encourage them to share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus? What they're going through is not accidental. What they're going through is not unknown to Christ Jesus. He's working in and through it. And then I'm going to come back to the entrust part in a minute. Paul's four images here, or four, <laughs> Paul's three images here, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. I really like what the Expositor's Bible Commentary has to say about this and attaches a singular reality to each one. And I think the soldier one is one that, boy, we desperately need in our culture today. So the um, Expositor's Bible Commentary says, In the soldier, the apostle finds the virtue of single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. 
refusing to be sidetracked or entangled in, quote, civilian affairs or the affairs of everyday life, the soldier maintains focus out of a desire to please the commanding officer. For first century Roman soldiers, this may have meant refraining from marriage and serving for 25 years or more. Satan has attacked the contemporary Western culture, so Europe and America, with busyness. It is a, uh, I think I mentioned this just last week, but the economics of time are staggering. You look at the turn of the century when Industrial Revolution is um, in its infancy, and most people are still farmers, there was very little time for anything. Because you, you had to work as light permitted, as weather permitted, um, certain care of the land, etc., as we've become technologically more advanced, we've gotten more time back. Believe it or not, we've gotten more time back. Uh, we, we, we don't, we're not slaves to the weather anymore. We drive in our vehicles to our workplaces that are usually indoors and, um, and we can still get our work done and we work our eight hours ish and then, uh, or some of you 20 hours a day and then we, we head back. So we've got more time in theory, than we've ever had. And yet, what I hear the most is I'm too busy for that. I can't be a part of that Bible study that would equip me to disciple the women in my neighborhood because I'm too busy. I've got to take this person to this place. I've got to do this thing by this date. I've got this, 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 this. The Christian has lost the single-mindedness necessary for the kingdom advance through disciple-making. We we make ourselves busy with things that are not necessarily eternal. We act like we're omniscient. If I expose my child to blank, then they're going to have a better chance at such and so, uh, the right college, the right job, the right career, whatever. No, not necessarily. If you expose your child to Christ, he will remain in the will of God and live faithfully. And that should be the single minded focus that we have. Um, if, if I don't get this, activity done or if i don't get this assignment done just this way i don't have time for a sabbath my work is so demanding no you have a sovereign god who is over all things who can push a deadline for you i mean assuming you've been faithful assuming you haven't procrastinated god can push a deadline a day if god needs to uh, we need to be single-minded on the on the endeavors of disciple making and being trained in the ways of righteousness oh uh, Mike Glenn says often that computers and email are supposed to make life easier for us, quicker communication, uh, supposed to liberate us, so to speak. And in many ways, it's just uh, ground us into the into the ground because now our bosses can find us at home. <laughs> they can send us an email that we should have access to whenever we want. We're never off the clock. We're never away. So the Christian has to overcome the um, I don't want to say trifles because, I mean, it's not like it doesn't matter. But we got to think, what what is discipling people better? What is helping you reach your neighbors better? What is helping your child become a better follower of Christ? Be about those activities. Be single-minded in that pursuit to please the one who enlisted us, namely Christ. The athlete. What does the athlete teach us? Uh, in the athlete, Paul commends the commitment to competing according to the rules. Rigorous training is imperative and full self-discipline and deprivation of earthly pleasures if a competitor wants to receive the victor's crown. But competing according to the rules also means the race must run to the finish. Christ wants us to strive every day. The person who gives up halfway through a race loses his honor, even though he may have set out bravely. 
Uh, and you know, Paul talks again, first Corinthians nine, first um, Thessalonians two, Philippians four. Uh, so according to the rules, who sets the rules, the namas, who sets the law for us? It was Christ set the bar and he set it in the great commission. Be about the business of making disciples of all peoples. And we do it in two ways. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and we teach them to obey everything that Christ commanded. That's the single-minded aim of the soldier expressed in the rules of the athlete. We teach them to obey the things of Christ. In a broad sense, we teach them to love God and love others. And in a narrow sense, there may be specific instances where we're in particular uh, parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe they do need to be more meek. Maybe they do need to get hatred out of their heart. Uh, well, they definitely do, but maybe I'm saying that's the particular thing that the person you are discipling is involved with. So aim at the general and work yourself to the particular down to the specific. So the athlete, according to the rules, and we want to be finishers of the race. And then lastly, the farmer, the farmer. Uh, in, in Paul's day, probably 85 to 90% of the people were involved either in growing or getting food, shipping, etc., uh, that they would have been involved with it. Uh, nevertheless, this is still applicable for us today because what is what does he say about the farmer? It's not just any farmer. It's not just somebody who owns a farm. It's the hardworking farmer. The hardworking farmer gets the first share of the crops. Uh, so elevate that willingness to work hard. The Alan Taylor works with Lifeway now, but for years was discipleship minister of First Baptist of Woodstock. Says here's what ministry costs: time, money, and effort. You want to do ministry, you better be ready to give time, money, and effort. And he's right. Because that is what it takes. Sacrifice. So now let's look at these three things together. Soldier, athlete, farmer. It's going to take hard work, but not just hard work aimed at randomness. Hard work aimed at the single-mindedness of disciple-making. So the farmer needs to work hard, thinking like a soldier in the single-mindedness of the mission Christ put us on. That is to make disciples according to the ways he established for us to make disciples, which is baptizing them and teaching them to obey. That's the Christian life. And I think those three images can drive us into that. So I don't know where your group is. Maybe your group needs the message of the soldier more. And you park on that all morning, all group time in your home uh, after your meal, whatever it takes. Uh, Maybe you need to elevate the rule following. Maybe they're just undisciplined people. And you need to hit them with that. Or maybe they just don't put effort into it. They work thousand hours at their jobs every week and then work very little for the kingdom of Christ. Uh, is there a way to merge those two? Is there a way for those to converge upon one another where our work is that of Christ, where we understand ourselves as Christian always on the clock? Verse 7 ending, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you, you Timothy, understanding in everything. Right. So there's still effort. The Lord's going to give the understanding. That's passive. You'll receive that understanding. But you think over it. You meditate over it. This is why we constantly have been driving you to have your people in the Bible every day. They're going to get much more about being in the word daily than they're going to get from a 20 to 30 minute lesson from any of us, no matter how great of a teachers that we are. I'm going to close by elevating that second imperative. So remember, the imperatives at the beginning were be strengthened in the grace of Christ, um, share in the suffering, and then lastly, to entrust. All right. So entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I want you to see the generations in this. 
So Paul says, I'm generation one. I gave to you, Timothy, a message. I gave to you, Timothy, the story of Christ. All right. And then I've entrusted that to you to go teach it to others. You, Timothy, teach that to faithful men. For what purpose? So that the faithful men will be able to teach others also. So we see four generations of people here. Paul, Timothy, the faithful men, and the others who are taught down the road. That should be the primary metric of success in our groups and in our disciple making. It should say, what kind of spiritual legacy, what kind of spiritual family tree do I have? Who is my Timothy that I need to be investing in now? Who are the faithful men I need to be investing in now? Who are the others who are being taught now? We have to shift our mindset to that. And if we think we have to train for 60 years to be ready to multiply, we're never going to achieve that end. We're never going to be able to say like Paul, um, you know, I gave you this message. Now go give it to others. We're not going to see the fruit of it because we're never going to feel prepared. We're never going to feel ready. So the encouragement is that you are going to mature as you are multiplying. Paul learns. Read Thessalonians. Not his theology isn't wrong in Thessalonians, but you read Thessalonians, which is his first letters. And you compare that to Romans, and his theology is a little more technical. It's a little more advanced by the time he gets to Romans. Uh, So he was never wrong. It was all inerrant text. But there is development and growth as he was going. Paul didn't wait. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to say, hey, Jerusalem council, uh, you know, train me so what I need to know so I can go about this business. Paul has his radical conversion experience, and then he leaves. He just goes off, and I assume. He's about the business of disciple making, then comes back to Jerusalem and makes sure he's in sync with those people. But Paul didn't wait. Paul matured as he went. Uh, He didn't hold Timothy back. Timothy matured as he went with Paul. And so we have to encourage our people not to wait, not to wait till they feel ready. God wants willing people. God makes us ready. What he wants is willing people. I really love this line because it, it cracked an idol that I had. Um, Here's what the Expositor's Bible Commentary says on verse 2. What is prized is not originality or innovation, but faithfulness and the ability to pass on receive teaching to others. Four generations are mentioned. Paul, Timothy, faithful individuals, and others. This chain of faithful teachers, not the Roman Catholic notion of papal succession, um, so strange tangent, but is this this chain of faithful teachers is the biblical vision of spiritual reproduction. Originality and innovation is what our culture drives us to. Uh, we don't want to be bland and we don't want to, um, we don't want to be boring. We want to be excited by newness, no doubt about it. But we also don't want to reinvent the wheel is that the omniscient Lord creator of the universe who's ruling sovereign over with it now gave us a mission and told us how to do it. I can be innovative in the way I go about the means of it, but the message, the commission, the general strategy is always the same. It ought to never change. There is no originality because it came from the original being before there was anything else. And that is namely, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit and teach them to obey all things that I have commanded you. I went through this for a time, both as a chemical engineer and as a young philosopher, where you want to make your mark. Um, all the heroes you read have you know, good credit attached to their name. They've done something famous. They've done something impactful. And you want to do that. You want a theorem named after you or you want an idea attached to you. And 
I remember particularly at my first seminary, I went through this worst where they really did push for uh, innovation and originality. And I, I bought into that for a short season. And then as I read the reformers, the whole reform movement is get back to the sources. Um, the, the Christian reformation goes backwards, not forwards. It's not, Hey, let's reform what we're doing to make it better. Cause we have new knowledge. Now the, the Christian reformation is get back to the original. Cause you've blown it. You've gone so far away from what the original, uh, truth and conditions were. And it really struck me and convicted me that uh, a good Bible teacher, a good theologian is really one who's faithful to what Christ has already laid forth and what all the heroes of the faith have already laid forth for us. So be about reproduction. Be about faithfulness to the gospel. Don't worry about the other stuff. When we do that, when we see the multiplication, then now we can understand kingdom expansion and what Jesus is after. 